We're sharing stories about why cities are great and how they can work better. Your host is Ryan Holywell, and this is The Urban Edge, produced by Rice University's Kinder Institute for Urban Research. That's right. This is Ryan Holywell, Senior Editor of the Kinder Institute for Urban Research. And what are we talking about today? Let's see if you can guess. That's right. You guessed it. Those are the sounds of the suburbs. And today to talk about the suburbs, we have the Kinder Institute's Dr. Kyle Shelton here in the studio at Rice University. Welcome to the podcast, Kyle. Hey, Ryan. Thanks for having me. This is the Kinder Institute for Urban Research. Why have you been studying the suburbs lately? Well, so this is a joint project that we uh, took on uh, in conjunction with the Urban Land Institute Houston's office, which actually applied for the grant from the National Foundation and and then matched it to help us uh, pay for the research. Um, And both ULI Houston and the Kinder Institute are are really interested in looking at the suburban regions of Houston for a number of reasons. One, the the region as a whole is more connected and more mutually supportive and mutually affected by the choices that are being made um, in both the central core of Houston itself and then in the communities around it. It's it's no longer really uh, accurate to to think of those municipalities or those individual developments as separate from the city. And so if we're really wanting to think about how a metropolitan region is growing and changing, we really have to think about those two um, usually and historically divided spaces as um, increasingly one space. And and that's actually happening in form as well in a lot of the case studies that we look at um, when you think about a community like the Woodlands or Sugarland or any number of master plan communities around the country that often traditionally started as kind of a single-family residential um, master plan community, but now are seeing a lot more um, urbanizing trends, I think, is probably the best way to think about it. So some town center developments that are very walkable, that are often built around a major amenity like a music venue or a park or a walkable mall. Um, And so even even the suburbs themselves now are homes to employment centers, homes to really places that look like downtowns. And so it's really important to start thinking about the ways we're developing those communities um, in the same way that we think about cities. So the report is called Building Stronger Suburbs, Adaptability and Resilience Best Practices from Suburban Houston. It's available on the Kinder Institute's website right now. That's kinder.rice.edu. It's right there on the front of the page. Talking about kind of the the numbers in Houston, I was looking at this earlier today. The Houston region, greater Houston, is about 6.5 million people. The population of people inside the loop in in really the urban core of Houston, it's less than half a million. So when we're talking about building stronger suburbs, you're really just talking about building a stronger Houston. Yeah, absolutely. And and one of the things that we did in the report actually that kind of acknowledges that reality is to look at some of the post-war suburbs, which are no longer suburban in feel, right? Often they were developed in the 50s and 60s and now have been completely encompassed by the city of Houston. Or they, just... were, they were the suburbs back then. Exactly. And, and today we don't consider them yep. suburbs. Some of them, you know, you can. there were a bunch of uh, suburbs developed in the 1960s or out around where Beltway 8 now is. And around them was Farmfield, right? Same north, same to the south. Um, and so the report actually looks 
not just at the kind of master plan communities that are being built now, 20 and 30 miles away from downtown Houston, but also some of these older communities um, because they have what we talk about as really unique suburban challenges, right? They were they were built in ways that central cities aren't built. They're very auto-dependent, both the historic ones and the contemporary ones. Um, and so they really have a lot of structural challenges that are definitively suburban. And so I think it's really helpful to think about them together. Um, and it's often one of the things that we wanted to do, both ULI and the Kinder Institute, is think about how do we how do we look at spaces like suburbs that are often kind of dismissed from uh, kind of the critical thinkers about where our cities are going and where our metropolitan areas are going? How can we look at these spaces that are in a lot of ways offering really great innovations, if not to cities, to one another, right? And I, but I also think there are some things that cities can learn from suburban areas. Um, so we really wanted to make sure that we kind of ran the gamut of being able to say, here are some older suburbs that might be struggling in different ways in a new master plan community, um, but they have some things to teach. These new communities have things to teach. They both can learn from cities and vice versa. So let's get into some of the examples you yeah. covered uh, in the report. Uh, you know, the the area that lots of people, uh, not just in Houston, but perhaps outside of our region, uh, will be familiar with is the Woodlands. Uh, beautiful com- uh, community, uh, about 35 minutes north of downtown Houston. What what lessons are there uh, that, that we can take away from the Woodlands and, and how applicable is uh, the Woodlands story to uh, perhaps other areas that don't enjoy the, the socioeconomic wealth uh, of a sure. place like that? Sure. So uh, before I jump into the, to the case study, um, we highlighted 10 best practices in the report and then go through those through these case studies and kind of explore some of them. Um, so the ones at the Woodlands, I think, really um, embody very well and that are things, to your point, that can be thought up in and, and brought into all sorts of communities. Um, the first is vision and leadership. And it seems several of these kind of seem like really general best practices. And there's a reason for that because very few people do all of the general best practices at once, right? A, people, a place might have one or two of them at working together. Um, but what we're really finding is thinking about how to work a lot of these together is, is great. Um, and vision and leadership is really essential to being able to do that, right? So the Woodlands is kind of the textbook example of really, I mean, master plan community, you can't really can't really think of another example that has fit that name quite the same as the Woodlands. It was it was a, a new town development in the 1970s. It had uh, an extraordinarily committed leader in George Mitchell, um, and the the development company had a vision. There's a sketch that one of the major um, uh, team members from the uh, the initial development made in 1973, I believe, in the report. And it shows exactly what the Woodlands is today, minus a, a small shift. There's not a transit loop. There's a, there's a riverway instead of a, a proposed circulator transit system. But beyond that, they had this vision of we're going to do residential town centers with small retail in the middle of them. And it's going to build back towards the highway, and there's going to be a town center there. And one of the things that that I came across in the interviews with the Woodlands folks was when 
in the early 1990s when it had still kind of stretched, the development of the community had taken more than 20 years at that point, um, there was a lot of temptation and pressure to say, hey, why don't we just scrap this town center? We know we can do these residential communities really well. Why don't we just plop in two more residential communities? But because they had such strong leadership and such a long-term vision, they said they decided to know we're going to stick to it. And now the Woodlands Town Center is a major employment area and major retail and, and, and entertainment area for a lot of northern Houston um, and is really a huge success and has been something that they can then build on and, and think about where the community is going both for residents but then attracting both employees, employers, and uh, recreational users to the community. Um, and then another big one that the Woodlands uh, personifies really well is uh, what we call in the report institutional software. So those are things like uh, deed covenants and um, design committees and other structures that you can put in place um, to really kind of keep the value and the um, vibrancy of a community in line with how it's been planned. And and they have some drawbacks. They can be very restrictive. They can kind of limit flexibility, and we talk a, a bit about that. Um, but one thing that they do really do provide is um, a, an ability for the controlling entity, be it a homeowners association or a municipality, to say, you know, that that type of structure doesn't fit into this community, it, you know, it, or you're, you're breaking these rules. I think some of them went a little too far. They have enough, they have so much regulation that they regulate the size of tree houses that you can put in your backyard. <laughs> Seems a little, little over the top to me, but hey, I've never tried to build a mansion tree house. <laughs> Maybe somebody has. Um, but yeah, to the question of how applicable those are, I mean, I think one of the one of the big takeaways for me is that um, the context of the suburb matters a great deal, right? And and a place like the Woodlands that has had these um, structures in place for a really long time, obviously, is ahead of the game, right? But that doesn't mean that you can't take pieces of it and try to implement them in new ways in communities that haven't had them, or find vehicles in those existing communities through which you can start to pursue some of these things. So, you know, a management district in a place like the near northwest side um, could begin to attempt to install some of these systems or work with their neighborhood associations to think about what they want to do in terms of improvements and ensuring those improvements uh, are maintained. So let's you you touched on uh, on the other example I was hoping you could dive into uh, near northwest side obviously a very, very different community than the Woodlands. Um, talk a little bit about what lessons uh, Houston can can learn from that community and maybe talk to us about some of the uh, exciting projects uh, underway there. They've got big plans for how they want to integrate the, the bayou into yeah. their community. Yeah, sure. Um, so near Northwest, like you said, it's really, it's an eclectic place. It's uh, just off of 290 for a lot of the section of the territory of the management district. Um, and so it has kind of a mix of 1950s and 60s luxury subdivisions, for lack of a better word. There's a few around the Inwood Golf Course that were developed as kind of executive level houses. Um, some really Class C and Class D, not very um, well kept uh, and very dense apartment complexes. Um, and then a whole lot of really successful, really vibrant uh, manufacturing and industrial pieces up there. And that's really the basis for the management district, which is one of the uh, entities that we really explore. Um, and their leadership is one that is, again, kind of a corollary to the Woodlands in a very different way. Um, they're an entity that really allows this territory that doesn't really have another organization 
or a municipality, right? It's part of Houston, but it's divided amongst three city council districts and two county commissioners and has a whole lot of overlapping jurisdictions. So having a management district there to say, you know, these are some of the priorities that we want. And really importantly, and this is, I think, one of the most translatable lessons is being able to build relationships and take on collaborative projects with a number of entities, that's something that the management district has been able to do incredibly successfully there. So their headquarters, for example, are um, a part of the Inwood Golf, are the, are the former headquarters of the Inwood Country Club. Um, and the golf course was purchased jointly by the county and the city. The management district leases the, the clubhouse and the golf course itself is uh, slated to become detention for water runoff. Um, and in the times that it is not flooded, um, it is uh, a disc golf course managed and maintained by the management district. So they've managed to not just keep a great green space in, in this community um, and use that as a leverage point for growth, but also amenitize it slightly um, and then to collaborate with the city and county to make it some a piece of infrastructure that is also really valuable for that area. So what's Near Northwest uh, going to look like in 10 years or 20 years once their their vision is is hopefully realized? Yeah, well, I think they, they did a livable center study with uh, HGAC, the local MPO, a few years ago. And I think their goal is to really be uh, able to maintain the employment centers that they have, the, the really uh, rich vein of manufacturing and warehousing that they have, and add to that around places like White Oak Bayou, which goes through the middle of them, some really um, well, well and carefully developed density um, with in, in terms of residential and commercial. And they, they have a lot of ideas about how to use uh, the, the bayou as a really great amenity. They have some there are some business partners already up there that are doing some really interesting things. There's a great example um, called White Oak Bayou Village, which is a, an adaptive reuse of kind of a traditional strip mall uh, center up there where the developer is really purposefully reorienting a huge chunk of the area towards the White Oak Bayou uh, Trail, which is now there. Um, and so, you know, they're, they're going to get a restaurant client who has a patio facing the trail. They've already, inter they've already kind of created a connection to the parking lot in a new way. So it's not just like the trail, you know, curves away from the parking lot, but there's actually kind of like a spur off to the parking lot to encourage people to park there and visit the retail and then also enjoy the trail. Um, so that's a really interesting example of what could happen throughout Houston because we're putting in all these bio greenways and some of the communities already have retail and have some spaces to, to leverage that and some of them need it. Um, and I think it's a great way to activate those trails beyond just the users. And that's something that every community is going to have to start thinking about how we want to do. We're talking to the Kinder Institute's Kyle Shelton about his Building Stronger Suburbs report just released by the Kinder Institute. Uh, one of the recommendations uh, that you have in your report um, that we see in, in quite a few of the communities you uh, studied is the idea of creating live, work, and play environments. And this is something that, uh, you know, this isn't a new idea. We hear about it in cities often. Um, you, you don't really see it in sort of the older suburbs quite so often. Tell us a little bit about uh, kind of what you saw in terms of that landscape and, and how you can apply that concept to older places that, that might not have had the live, work, play idea in place uh, at their inception. Yeah, sure. It's a, it's a really good point. I think that is one of the more challenging ones for 
um, older communities to, to grapple with because it is a really often significant transformation of the built environment or a really large rethinking of what you do want to do with the assets that you have. Um, but generally, live, work, play, uh, kind of the best way to think about it would be um, kind of a traditional downtown. So Manhattan is a live, work, play environment, right? There are people doing all sorts of things 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Some of them are working. Some of them are uh, you know, exercising. Some of them are recreating. There's all all sorts of things that people are doing. Um, and the, the kind of the trend and what I was alluding to earlier in the introduction about urbanizing suburbs is, is the pursuit of that environment in a town center type place. So thinking of city center uh, out to the west of downtown, um, it's a major commercial district, right? And that's certainly their focus is office and commercial, but they also have um, several hundred residential units now. And and those people are able to take advantage of the wide variety of amenities there. I don't know how many of them actually work in city center, but certainly that's an option for people who, who are living there. Um, but then they also have, they have a movie theater, they have a number of restaurants with a variety of price points, they have an athletic club. Um, and so that that development really consciously made the choice to try to do it all at once with a mix of amenities, a mix of types of amenities um, to really encourage and attract people to, to live there, not just visit it on the weekend or not just visit it for lunch, um, but to say, you can do a lot of what you need to do on your daily, in your daily life within your community. So in a lot of ways, it's kind of manufacturing a small town, right? Like you can kind of think of some of those, those larger town centers within a major development as attempting to replicate some of what used to exist in, in traditional downtowns or still exists in many downtowns. Um, even Houston's Downtown Living Initiative is kind of an attempt to create and, and bring live, work, play to downtown Houston. They've had the, the work there, a little bit of the play, and not so much of the live exactly. historically. Yeah, right. yeah and, that's, and that's shifting. Um, but yeah, I think uh, a place like Sugarland is actually a really interesting example of this, an imperial market, the case study that we look at really closely. Um, you know, Sugarland historically it was one of those kind of sleep, sleepy residential suburbs, right? It didn't have a whole lot uh, beyond residential and beyond strip retail and commercial when it was founded. Um, they started to change that with the Sugarland Town Center, which has been really successful. That's more of a work and play and, and less of a live, though they're adding more options for people to live right in town center. Um, but they have really uh, uh, consciously been been pushing for more of this element in some of their new master plan communities with Imperial and Imperial Market being a really great example of that. Um, and so kind of the southern end of this new of this new subdivision includes the um, minor league ballpark that Sugarland has. Um, it includes the new children's museum. It includes the entire uh, campus of Imperial Sugar, which is the old Imperial Sugar factory, which is which is slated for a number of adaptive reuses from its developer now. Um, and then that whole center, which is kind of what you would think of as a live work play center, is surrounded. Uh, within walking distance by residential. Um, and even that includes some really interesting elements like uh, the agreement with Imperial Sugarland includes what they call uh, live-work units. So you kind of imagine just a two- or three-story 
townhome, basically, where the bottom floor is not the garage, but is actually a venue through which very particular businesses, but but some businesses can can operate from somebody's home. So actually, again, interestingly, maybe should put this in there. I'm thinking a number of ways that these these uh, practices are. Uh, replicating sort of old older practices, yeah. right? older downtown practices, because it's kind of that traditional live above, work below model. Well, it sounds like the message is, if you think you know the suburbs, think again. Yeah. Well, that is Dr. Kyle Shelton with the Kinder Institute talking about his new report, Building Stronger Suburbs. Thanks for speaking with us. Thanks. And that wraps it up. This is Ryan Holywell with the Kinder Institute's Urban Edge podcast. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Rice Kinder Inst. That's I-N-S-T, like institute. And of course, be sure to follow the Urban Edge blog online at kinderurbanedge.com. As always, we want to hear from you. Send us a note. Let us know what you like about the show, what you don't like, what guests you want to have on the show, what topics you want us to cover. My email address is urbanedge at rice.edu. And that's a wrap. Thanks for listening.